On tonight's show, we are incredibly honored to have on the legendary Bill James. It is hard to imagine baseball analytics in 2021 without the incredible work of the father of sabermetrics. Bill joins us today to talk about a number of topics, from his runs-created formula to similarity scores to closer committees in baseball and beating the shift. And later in the show, we'll have our trade deadline waiver wire pickups and a look at some new closer situations around baseball. Bill James is next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, and we have a very, very special guest on today's show. Um, this is Bill James that we have on here, and uh, Bill James is the father of Sabermetrics. Uh, I mean, some statistics that are attributed to Bill, runs created, game score, the Pythagorean winning percentage, and many more. Bill worked for the Red Sox for more than a decade and a half, and you know he's featured in the famous book Moneyball by Michael Lewis. I've only named just a couple of uh, 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 some interesting things about Bill, but uh, um, unbelievable. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome, Bill James. Thank you for having me on, and we are not going to tell anybody how much trouble it was to make my equipment work here. Oh, ah. We, we did it. It only took a few minutes, but uh, we're glad to have you on and rolling. And, you know, before we get started with the show, um, you know, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your personal history? You know, how, how did you get started writing all the baseball abstracts and how did you get into the real business of baseball? The, uh, I started the baseball abstract with very low expectations, both for the book and for myself. The, um, I graduated from college in 71, got out, was drafted, got out of the Army in 73, and I would have liked to, well, I would have liked to write books, which worked out well, actually. But assuming that I wasn't going to be able to make a living as a writer, I would have liked to uh, just be a local sports writer. I would have liked to uh, write for my local paper or somebody else's local paper. However, being who I was at that time, I felt that I would never get that job. I felt, and you know, I had real... I had real issues at that time that would have made it difficult for anyone to hire me. Uh, I didn't dress well. I didn't have any background in journalism. Uh, I tended to insult people uh, 10 or 15 times an hour. It would have been hard for me to uh, find that that dream job as a, as a sports writer for some small town somewhere. So I decided the only way I could do this was to do it myself. So I started writing the kind of articles that interested me and putting them together in a little book. And uh, it took off beyond my expectations or anyone else's expectations. Well, again, thank you for coming on. I know you probably have a very busy schedule and everything. Um, now, you are considered one of the forefathers or the forefather of Sabermetrics. How has Sabermetrics changed in the last five to ten years, would you say? I'm not sure I can answer how it's changed in the last five to 10 years. Over time, uh, Sabermetrics has become something a long way from what it was in the 1970s when, when uh, Pete Palmer and, and uh, Nick Kramer and Dallas Adams and myself 
were basically the only people doing it. What we were doing was trying to find a way to put all of the little stuff together and answer the bigger questions. In other words, we were trying to study questions like why do teams win? Uh, who is better than who? Who really belongs in the Hall of Fame? Um, the uh, Who's a better first baseman, Freddie Freeman or Jose Abreu? The, uh, this was the 1970s, and <clears throat> Freddie Freeman and Jose Abreu probably weren't born yet, but you get my point. Uh, the, uh, uh, that was what we studied, and that was what we called sabermetrics. What has come to be called sabermetrics is mostly uh, the invention of new systems of collecting data. You know, we measure... Uh, we measure very small increments of the game. We measure how hard a ball is hit. We measure uh, the launch angle. We measure the uh, exact velocity and the exact break on a pitch. And those things are called sabermetrics. But that, that kind of thing honestly doesn't have very much to do with the stuff that we were doing when the field broke through in the early 1980s. So actually, when it broke through in the 1980s, you created a lot of these um, terms for these new metrics. Which one are you most proud of creating and why? Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, honestly. The, um, I, I suppose runs created because it answers such a basic question about the game. But the thing I always try to take credit for and never get credit for is I claim to have invented uh, Bring Your Dog to the Park Day. And... Uh, I was I was doing a radio show, not very different from this, in in Milwaukee, like at the, toward the end of the season, and must have been eighty three or eighty four, and it was just a dreadfully boring show. So I decided to say something stupid just to see what would happen, and so I started talking about some game that I claimed had happened. It never actually happened. It was, um, and I claimed it was bring your dog to the park deck, which I figured was just a stupid idea because dog doesn't get anything out of being at the park anyway and you'd have dog fights and dog doo-doo and people and dogs barking and you couldn't concentrate on the game so the uh that was in milwaukee and sure enough the next year the brewers actually did it so i claimed i claimed credit for that the um and it actually worked i mean i i never thought it would work but it did so uh, that, that that's the one i'm going to claim <laughs> out of out of all the metrics you're claiming as your favorite the the uh, bring the dog to uh, the park. That that's fantastic. Um, but uh, you, you know what? You mentioned runs created, and uh, I, you know I, I have to tell you something uh, about it with with me. And you know, runs created one of the shorthands, the most simplest fashion, in the most simplest form is uh, OBP times total bases. Right, that's the very basic, simple form right. without taking stolen bases and quad stealing and everything to account. Um, I play in a, a softball league. And it's not a major league level. There are plenty of errors that go around. And when I compared our team's runs versus the theoretical runs created formula, there was always some discrepancy. We would always score more runs. And that led to me right. to think I, there's got to be some way to modify that formula to work for to work for the, uh, this league. And so I found out that if I added uh, a reached on an error, as a half a total base, like a single is one and a double is two, a reach and an error is a half a total base. That was the the additional ballast that 
got all the runs uh, scored for my team to be very, very close year after year to the to the um, formula-driven runs created that you would have created. So I, I thought that wow. was interesting to share with you. Well, it's fascinating. I, I never thought of that. The uh, I've done all kinds of uh, complicated dances to try to make the system work in 1905 and 1955 and 2005 and still work today. But I never thought to include ROE reached on error as an element, probably because the data would not have been widely available until well, maybe 2000. Well, going back 100 years, it wouldn't be widely available until the last five years. So that's that's a wonderful idea. And I'll, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I mean, well, I should I should point out that um, Dick Kramer actually used the formula you just mentioned before I did. He didn't call it runs created, but he used this used the same formula. The uh, but I'll, I'll try that uh, and see if it if it if it works in the majors. If it you know solves some of my problems in the majors. Well, I would be uh, immensely honored if you would uh, uh, definitely see what kind of uh, you know factor times reached on error would actually help and and give uh, a formula more meaning. That that would be a great honor if if you would run with that. Uh, th- thank you for that. Well, the uh, th- thank you for the suggestion. I'll give it a look. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that that's just something that, you know, you, you had an influence on me, and I thought of that, and I did my calculations, and there you go. Uh, but ba- back to real-life baseball. You know, um, I, ta- I said that you uh, were featured in the, the book Moneyball, and the OBP was, was featured there, and uh, Bill- Billy Bean stumbled on the fact that ball clubs were undervaluing on base percentage. Um, is there a, st- a stat that you think in today's game uh, w- the ball clubs are undervaluing? Like, it, is there a new OBP in the sense of something that maybe uh, teams should pay attention to more that would give them an edge? Uh, I don't know that I can answer your question in the exact form that you a- you ask it, Ariel. However, I would say this: uh, there is still an immense amount of received wisdom slash BS that controls how decisions are made in baseball. And I mean, we have carved away at it and we have eliminated 20% of it or 30% of it, but there's still an immense amount of, I mean, listen to any baseball broadcast and the announcer will say some things which have long since been established as nonsense. And will also say a long series of things that are speculative and questionable. Uh, so I, I don't know that I can give you one thing, but I do think that there's something there, yes. And I do think that there are still a lot of things that could be lifted from our our understanding of the game and could be very useful to teams. Right. Um, question on defensive metrics. And, you know, it, it, offensive metrics are a little bit more easier to see in, in terms of uh, usefulness. Um, what, in your opinion, is the best defensive metric to use? UZR, DRS, fielding percentage? You know, what, what do you find is the most helpful and accurate? The, I do not know how accurate any of them are. I can't really tell you that. The, uh, what I use is, you know, run, save, plus, minus. I mean, that's, that's what I refer to most often because it's conceptually simple. I don't have I don't have immense confidence that it's accurate. Uh, 
I whatever I learn from a defensive metric, I want to see it uh, confirmed by watching the player or by uh, the opinion of a scout that I value or by another two or three other defensive metrics. When there is a convergence of different ways of measuring something around a, a uh, single conclusion, then I have a lot of confidence that that conclusion is right. But when it's one method on its own, no matter what it is, I never have a lot of confidence that it's, it's correct. Well, actually, one of the teams that have had the best defensive run save this year are the Tampa Bay Rays, and it shows because they have a great defense, a very athletic team in general. And another thing that they've actually um, put into uh, use is the use of closer by committee. Now, you did, you actually started talking about this with the Red Sox. They never actually implemented it. But how did you come up with that philosophy, and how soon until we see the rest of baseball move to that strategy, do you think? Well, uh, to be clear, I never actually advocated that with the Red Sox. Uh, the uh, people wrote that I did, but I never really oh. did. The, uh, um, but uh, closer by committee is a, a rejection of conventional wisdom. Uh, and since I, <laughs> I reject conventional wisdom on a pretty regular basis, it is something that people would naturally associate with me. The, um, you have to remember, and a younger fan may not be able to relate to this, but there was a period, roughly 1985 to 2005, when the belief in the closer, the efficacy of the closer was at a very, very high level. And uh, every team had to have a closer. And people would say, although it was never true, people would say uh, on television, constantly that, you know, you're going to win in postseason, you got to have a great closer. Or if you're going to win in the close games, you got to have a great closer. Uh, and this, this belief was um, pitched at such a level that it was uh, almost impossible to argue with. Uh, anyone who, who argued with it tended to be, tended to be branded a heretic. Uh, well, you know, I've been a heretic a long time. I like that. Uh, so I, I <laughs> kind of sort of willingly embraced that position, although never actually advocating it. I never actually advocated a closer by committee, but I did make fun of the idea that you had to have a great closer, a single identifiable great closer in order to succeed in baseball, because you clearly didn't. There were, any year you name, there are, there are teams that were very successful with either a mediocre closer or just a bunch of guys showing up, whoever shows up today. So, the uh, yes, I think I think that the belief in the value of a great closer is breaking up, and I believe it will continue to break up over time. Uh, I mean, if you have somebody who's great in that role and you have a bullpen that can support him, that's wonderful. But uh, I don't think that it's. I never thought that it's something you have to have in order to succeed. And as a follow-up to that, another thing the Rays did was, was actually under Joe Madden. They started implementing the infield shift. What's your feeling about that infield shift? Do you think it should be disallowed? I mean, shouldn't players be allowed to play wherever they want to on the field? Right. No, I don't see, I don't see any sensible argument for disallowing it. Well, the, the argument for disallowing it, and this gets back to things that people believe that aren't true, 
The argument for disallowing it is that uh, it's changed the game and it's driving batting averages down. <clears throat> well, obviously it does drive batting averages down a little bit, but it's, its impact on the overall game is is minimal. I mean, uh, the uh, it's just the hits go up the middle or hits go uh, to the um, hits go to a slightly different position, whereas they don't go up the middle anymore as they did. The um, but the in-play batting average now is higher than it was 20 years ago. Uh, and if the shift was doing what people think it was doing, that couldn't possibly be true. Uh, so, the, no, I don't see any legitimate argument for banning the shift or, you know, uh, I mean, I don't see how as much as I love baseball and I, I honestly I enjoy baseball now more than I ever have and uh, baseball has cons consumed a vast chunk of my life but it does have aesthetic problems right there are a lot of things that you kind of need to do uh, to make the game move at a quicker pace banning the shift isn't going isn't one of those it's not going to do anything right and I, I mean call me very overly simplistic but uh, isn't a solution uh, for a team to teach some very simplistic bunting? And if a team bunted down the third base line with their lefties once out of every four times, wouldn't that almost stop the shift? Uh, is that is that too too silly for me to even suggest? Well, uh, the no, it's not too silly to suggest, but I, I have no independent way of knowing that it's true or that it's false. You know, the um, when I started writing about this subject in the 1970s, my assumption was, well, I don't have any experience in baseball. I'm, I don't have any credentials to be an authority. So everything I claim is true, I have to be able to prove is true with reference to objective facts. I mean, that assumption, that point of view is what created sabermetrics. I mean, the... Uh, the difference between sports writing and sabermetrics is that in sports writing, you can say what you think is true, but in sabermetrics, you have to be able to show that it's true. And I, I don't have any independent way of showing that that's true. I mean, it, well, you can, you can definitely show that it's true that if people could bunt once in a while, right. it would end the shift, right? You can definitely show that that part of it's true, but whether players could learn to bunt at the major league level with uh, reasonable effort and success, I do not know. Right. Well, you know, the, the, there you go. You, you're a baseball scientist, and you know you follow the scientific method. Um, just a question. Um, you know, you have uh, your simi similarity scores. Um, could you just explain to the audience here how do you compare different ball players, especially across different baseball eras? The uh, um, the adaptation of similarity scores has greatly disappointed me over the years. The, uh, if I can mention your rival's site, uh, Baseball References publishes similarity scores, but it isn't at all what I was trying to do. When I use similarity scores, I, I use them all the time in my own research. I, I will use them in a project that I'm working on at this moment. The, um, uh, when I use them, I create a similarity score that is appropriate to the purpose that I'm studying, right? It's not just a matter of looking for somebody who has about the same set of numbers. It's looking for somebody who has who is similar in the ways that are relevant to this particular question. 
people have never gotten that idea. And uh, Baseball Reference, by publishing similarity scores, uh, which are sort of disembodied, has is, um, you know, and I, I like Sean Foreman, and I, I've always meant to try to talk to him about this issue, the, uh, and, and try to get him to adapt uh, what he's doing. For example, in many in many studies that you're doing, including the one I'm doing right now, a player's age is extremely relevant, right? But if you're just so, if you're just looking at guys who had years like this, it doesn't matter whether he's 21 or 32. And I don't, I think, um, so so it's um, it's it, there, that line of research is kind of blocked. It's it's just sitting where it was when I introduced it in 1982. Uh, would you like me to back off and try to answer more directly your question? The um, your question was how do you do that? Well, uh, you place values on things. If one player hits 40 homers and another player hits uh, 39, that's a high degree of similarity there, right? Uh, and so the player who hits 39 homers is much more similar than the player who hits 10 homers. And the player who hits, uh, um, drives in 120 runs is much more similar to the guy who drives in 100 than to the guy who drives in 40. And uh, you, you can, in this way, which is, uh, it's an intuitive idea, right? But for any study in which you're trying to project what will happen next or whether you're testing whether there's a real effect there or not, you really have to include age, uh, and sometimes sometimes you have to include late season performance or uh, uh, early season performance. You have sometimes you, sometimes speed is very very important, and sometimes it's not relevant at all. Sometimes you you can compare a third baseman and a first baseman on a level field, and sometimes you can't. I mean, if you're just talking about them as hitters, it doesn't make any difference for these. Well. I shouldn't overstate it. You're just talking to them. Let's say you're discussing the uh, the impact of a player hitting an extra 20 home runs. Well, you know, it doesn't matter whether he's a third baseman or first baseman. It's the same. But if you're talking about his overall value or most of the questions you would discuss about it, then it makes a huge difference whether he's a third baseman or first baseman. So then you place a value on that difference, which is relevant to the study that you're trying to conduct. Right. And you did this recently uh, in an article where you had to, you compared the greatest players of all time uh, by showing the greatest teams of the decade. And you, know, you had your all uh, 2010 team and your all 1990s team. And uh, I'm assuming that you used some scores. Uh, but before we go on, we have this week's Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Now, actually, instead of the trivia this week, we're going to play a little game called Guess Their Average. The game is going to be between Bill James and Ariel. <laughs> I'm going to list. I am going to list five players who are on this uh, in the article that, that Bill James wrote about the greatest players of all time in each decade, and you will try to guess the, their batting average. And whoever gets closest will get one point. Whoever gets to three points first wins. Well, is that okay, <laughs> it's me versus Bill here. Yes. All right. <laughs> okay. First of I all, the first player. 
Okay. <laughs> well, no, no cheating. Yeah, yeah. Gonna, no cheating. No cheating. The first player we're going to start with is one of the hottest hitters in the majors right now. He's homered in six straight games, which is a new Reds uh, record. Who? What is the average career average for Joey Votto? Do I go first or does Bill? You go first. Uh, all right. I'm going to go for, uh, I'll say 302. I'm going to say 293. The answer is 303 currently. Oh, wow. Wow. 303. So, Ariel, you get that point. Oh, wow. The next player I'm going to list has a career 675 home runs to date. I'm talking about Albert Pujols. Everyone knows he's a home run hitter, but what is his career batting average to date? Bill, you can go first. Uh, over the last 10 years, it's 206, but then there were some good years before that. No, I know it's not 206, but the um, let's say he probably hit 320, 325 the first 10 years, and it's probably at 260 the last. So the, let's guess 288. All right, I'm gonna Mario? I'm gonna take the over on that, so I'll go 295. Wow, 297 is his current wow. uh, career wow. average. Okay, now this this one is hopefully this will will be in Bill James's um, wheelhouse. It's a li- yeah. players a little bit older. Pressure's on. <laughs> it's yeah, it's someone who I think is one of the top five greatest pure hitters of all time, and I've actually seen him play, and he was amazing. You can never get him out, and that's Tony Gwynn. What was Tony Gwynn's career batting average? Uh, I'm going to guess three twenty two. Ariel? I'm going to go over that. I'm going to go, uh, I'll go 330. 338. Wow. Oh, wow. 338. Can you imagine a a batter this this day and age batting a career 338? That's crazy. Oh, wow. The career exit velocity of about averaging about 65 miles an hour. He just, he just wow. slapped the ball and rolled it. That's all. It, it doesn't matter. If you hit it two feet and you get on first base, you hit it 200 feet and get on first base, it still counts as a hit. So the next player I'm going to mention, even though Ariel, you already got the three points, oh, is wow. the captain. He's going to Cooperstown this year, and I'm talking about Derek Jeter. What is Derek Jeter's career batting average? Ariel, go first. Uh, Jeter, 315? Uh, I'll go 310. Ding, ding, ding. 310. We have a winner there. Derek Jeter's exactly. career average wow. is exactly 310. And now, in honor of the trade deadline, Nelson Cruz, who was recently traded, what's his career batting average? Um, 284. Uh, I'll say 275. Right in the middle, 278. The answer is 278. Ah. Oh, wow. So. He actually hit for average pretty well for a while, and, and he's he's not one of those Joey Gallo types who hits 230, 220, and hits all those home runs. He's actually a pretty good all-around hitter. So, Bill, who, in your opinion, is the greatest hitter of all time, and who is the greatest pitcher of all time? Uh, greatest hitter, I'm going to stick with Babe Ruth. Uh, greatest pitcher, and maybe unpopular, but I'd go with Roger Clemens. I think Clemens... Uh, Clemens has more great years relative to his time than anybody else. It's hard to argue with that, yeah. And um, and and how do how would actually how do you think Babe Ruth would stack up against today's players? Do you think he would have had the same type of career, or do you think he would not be able to catch up to the fastballs of today? I was just thinking about this this um, issue in this way. Um, 
30 years ago, it, it was common for the, the common belief on that related to that issue 30 years ago. No, I shouldn't say the common belief. For 100 years, old baseball players immediately on retiring would start telling the press how much greater they were in they, their day than the modern players. Uh, and Rob Nyer and I got really interested in that. And we, we found record of like 100 players doing that from literally from the 1890s until, until the time that we stopped. And we used to publish and we published in several different books these quotes from, from uh, you know, retired players, uh, Ernie Lombardi in 1948 saying, you know, None of these guys could hit uh, could hit uh, uh, Carl Hubble, you know. The uh, uh, since I don't know that anybody truly believed that there was a constantly descending quality of major league play, but the, there was a general perception that the play, quality of play is not was not going up. Now the Worm has completely turned on that, and almost all sports fans now um, tend to imagine that there's been this tremendous improvement in the quality of play over time. And I don't buy that any more than I did the other. I don't see any evidence. I I don't see any evidence that there's a, a radical improvement in quality of play over the last 30 years. I don't see any reason at all to believe that. Uh, and if we have now these relievers who pitch, who play 100, and, who, who pitch 30 innings a year and throw 102 miles an hour, right? Um, but if they're if they're better than the players of 50 years ago, why can't they do what Sandy Koufax did? Why can't they do what Bob Gibson did? Um, and every claim for improvement in the game over time comes down to an issue like that. The players of today do something that the players of 30 years ago didn't do and couldn't do, but also the players of 30 years ago did things that players today don't do. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that, uh, I, I'm not convinced that any 19, 2021 team I'm convinced that they would totally dominate a team from 1921. I'm convinced they would probably beat a team from 1971, but I don't see it as being a one-sided competition. The only thing I'll throw into that equation is that there has been expansion in baseball. Right? The number of teams has increased, and just because you know, if you have the best talent spread on 32 teams versus uh you know versus 25 teams for example you're going to have a little bit of a watering down right the average hitter will be worse the average pitcher would be worse so where would how would that factor into comparing different eras of baseball well that, that's a really good question and it depends on where you come down on this issue and that is are major league players major league players because of innate athleticism or because combined with their natural athleticism, they've learned how to play the game at that level. And I mostly believe that they are at that level because they have learned how to play at that level. I think there are actually a substantial number of people who have the athletic ability, 
the reflexes, the innate ability to play at that level, but who whose careers ended somewhere because they ran out of chances. Uh, and because I believe that, I mean, and this is what I have done studies about that, and which are hard to explain and hard to justify, but they tend to suggest that the effects of the first expansion in 1961-62 actually played out within a few years. They probably played out by 1968. However, the effects of the second expansion in 1969, when baseball went from, well, baseball in a decade, in a period of 10 years, went from 16 teams to 24, right? And that's a big expansion. And it, because of that, the effects of the second expansion were much bigger and took much longer. It took much longer for baseball to get back to the level where it had been post-expansion. At least that's my belief. Right. Um, let's move on to a couple of mailbag questions that our listeners gave in. Let's start with Pat's question, and he's asking, um, do you have any rule changes that you think would improve the game of baseball? There, are, Yeah, there are, a lot of things, uh, there are a lot of things you could do that wouldn't ruin the game. <laughs> uh, I mean, those wouldn't be favored by the commissioner. No, just kidding. They have... Um, I'm actually starting to soften on the on the uh, designated runner in the tenth inning. I, I thought I hated it the first, and I'm, I'm starting to I'm starting to accept it. The seven inning doubleheaders, I'm never going to get there. The um, uh, yeah, I think there are rules that def, rules that definitely need to be there that aren't there. For example, um, no pitcher should be allowed to stand on the mound and throw repeatedly to the first base. It's, it's a waste of everybody's time. And it doesn't make any sense to say that the uh, pitcher is only allowed to make you know, three, three bad throws to home to the batter. And then on the fourth one, he loses the contest and the batter goes to first. But if he wants to stand at first, stand on the mound and make 11 bad throws to first base, well, that's fine. That's not fine. It doesn't make any sense. The, uh, so that's one. The uh, I I would uh, I'm not really in favor of clocks, you know. But well, for example, the what we can call the Gary Sanchez rule, the rule that limits how often a catcher can trundle out to the mound and and uh, uh, count his fingers. That, that that's been a very good rule, and it's just been four or five years, and everybody accepts it universally, right? It's kind of hard to imagine baseball being played without it anymore. The, uh, um, but, but there has to be some sort of limit on batters being granted timeout uh, when the pitcher is ready to pitch. I mean, that's the biggest thing that could be done that would easily make the game move at a more realistic pace. Right, interesting suggestions here. Um, question from from Scotty. Uh, he he asks how. Is the your pitcher's game score statistic holding up? Would you have any revisions if creating in a, a statistic in today's bullpen-heavy environment? What would you change? The uh, well, several people have suggested different ways of doing it, right? So I'll leave the amendments up to them. It's held up remarkably well over time. I mean, the, the average is fifty, pretty much in, in the nineteen sixties. Actually, goes up to fifty-two or something, and it's around fifty in the steroid era actually goes down to 48 and a half or something but it's about it, the average it held up remarkably well over time 
and I'm comfortable with it. And, you know, I mean, everything I've done, somebody else has come up with a better way to do it or what they claim is a better way to do it. And I'm not going to argue with them. You know, if you have a better way to do it, well, sure. But I'm not also not going to revise my own method. Yeah. But, you know, I'll add to that. Um, it, what, what, what I like about your work is it's simple concepts and simple things. And sure, right. there's a better formula where you add point two of this and you factor in this and that gets you a little bit more exact. But that's not what baseball statistics is about. It's about the simplicity. I mean, going, just going back to the runs created, OBP times total bases, that's such a simple way to put things. And it's, it gets you 85% of the way there. I like the simplicity in what you do. That, that's exactly right, Ariel. I do strongly prefer simple ideas to complicated ones. And I argue, argue that that's one of the one of the biggest barriers to um, sabermetrics becoming more easily accepted by the guys who call into talk shows. It, is, is you have to keep, you know, if you want people to understand what you're saying, you have to keep your ideas on a level that the human mind can retain them and possess them. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, a little bit about you uh, in terms of uh, what you're doing the next. Uh, right, what are you doing right now? And uh, you know, what, what do you hope to accomplish in baseball personally during the next five years? Let's say the uh, uh, what I did today. We had a two-hour meeting about the handbook planning meeting. We published the Bill James Baseball Handbook. I've published it every year since uh, late 1980s, and so you have a it now takes as long to have a meeting to plan it as it did to write the book and create the book in the in the origin. That's an overstatement, but the, everything gets more complicated over time. The um, uh, I'm, the study I'm working on, I'll tell you this: the uh, people say that uh, when a pitcher has to make several starts in the postseason, has to pitch an extra twenty innings that that has a carryover effect for the next year. Uh, I promise you, in the World Series, somebody will say that on the air. Uh, but I don't know whether it's true or not. So I, I'm in the middle of a study in which I will, uh, A, try to identify the hardest working postseason pitchers uh, in, of the last 25 years. B, mat, by similarity scores, match each one of those with a very similar pitcher who didn't pitch in the postseason, and C, try to see whether there's any carryover effect that you can observe. Uh, the guys who work hard in the postseason, if they're, they have any, any more tendency to break down the next year. Now that's great stuff. Um, and I look forward to reading and uh, diving into that research. So uh, thanks for that. Um, yeah, uh, once again, uh, thank you so much, uh, Bill, for, for coming on. Uh, you can follow Bill on Twitter at Bill James Online, and of course, you can take a look at, at his website, BillJames.com, I believe. Uh, and anything else uh, you want to tell uh, the listeners uh, what's going on? Uh, any pl- anything you want to plug? The uh, no, I don't think I have anything else to plug. I do appreciate you having me on, and uh, I'd be happy to talk to you anytime. Uh, th- thank you. The honor is, is really thank you ours. So much. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, all right, uh, well, we'll be back uh, here in just a short moment with our uh, waiver wire and pitcher previews and injuries from Ruvain. Once again, thank you so much, uh, Bill James. We'll see you in just a bit. All right, we're back here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. 
Very honored to have on the legendary, uh, the great Bill James on the show. Talking about, I, I can't believe that. Uh, 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 well, first of all, I can't believe that I beat Bill James in a uh, in a baseball contest. That was pretty cool, Ruben. Um, and, yeah, and uh, I can't. Be- and I can't. I can't believe you brought up the fact about your softball with him. Also, I can't believe <laughs> that either. So. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny, but you know, you, we're asking the question about you know his favorite statistic, and like that's the one that I used from him, and that I worked hard on altering. And you know, you know, I like to talk about my softball league, and. I don't know. It just fit, and lo and behold, he said that uh, that uh, that was interesting to him. So uh, I, I'm very uh, I'm very impressed there. All right, <laughs> on to yeah. our uh, waiver wire a segment. Uh, could be an interesting one. We got all the trade deadline. Uh, this show is being recorded on a Thursday night. The trade deadline is Friday, so yeah, there might be other people to pick up uh, because of that in between. But we'll do our best for the knowledge we have. Ruvain, why don't you start first? Who's a couple of waiver wire guys pick up? All right, the first guy I'm going to mention is Brian Anderson from the Marlins. He's only 36% owned in CBS. Garrett Cooper's out for the year. Brian Anderson can play almost everywhere. He's played first in the past. He can play third. He can play the outfield. He's only eligible third this year. But so far for this year, he's batting 264, five homers, 15 RBIs, and four stolen bases. Now, over the past couple of uh, last week or so, he's hitting over 350. So he's a guy, if he's still available in any of your leagues, he is going to be eligible at third base right now. He may get eligibility later in the outfield, but we'll see about that. And another guy I wanted to mention who I you know, was thinking about not mentioning because of the trade that the uh, Mariners just made to get Diego Castillo was Drew Steckenrider from the Mariners. Drew Steckenrider would be the would have been the next guy up if Paul Sewell would have failed as Mariners closer. Now, even though he's not going to be the closer, and even though Drew Steckenrider is going to be one of the setup men again, he has been very, very good this year. And if you want someone to stabilize your ERA and whip, he's the guy to go to. In 39 innings, he got 41 strikeouts, three saves, a 2.08 ERA, a .97 whip, and he's only 4% owned in CBS. Now, if you can't stomach any of the two-star pitchers that you have, he's a guy that if you just you can get for free. Nobody's going to want him. And you can plug him in there, and you can help with your ratios for a week or two. All right, so I'm going to mention two batters, and then I think we really do have to talk about closers. So we'll, we'll do that separately. But uh, first, uh, let's start with Rowdy Telez, only 10% owned on CBS, 10 for his last, 24, four walks, three homers in that span. Um, he's a guy who's heating up, trying to find success with a new team. They brought in some reinforcements with Eduardo Escobar being traded there. I think Rowdy Telez is somebody that you might want to pick up. Somebody who was, you know, people were high on before the season started. I think the change of scenery could help. How about Rognet Odor on the Yankees? 17% on CBS. Three homers in his last two weeks. He's batting 286 over that span. And now look at that lineup. You got Joey Gallo, Anthony Rizzo traded there, Aaron Judge, Stanton. I mean, look at that power in the team. And Rognet Odor under own player. Uh, somebody that if you need a uh, second baseman, he can fill in the spot. Um, closers. I think we should really talk about this separately. Um, are there any, uh, let, let's fill in between you and me, the, some closer situations that uh, are now open that you might want to throw a dart on who the next closer is going to be in this uh, you know window right after the trade deadline. Well, I think one of the, you have to look at the teams that are trading away the closers. Now, one of the teams that traded away one of their closers was Tampa. They just traded Diego Castillo. Are you buying any of their closers right yes. now who are you to, just to pick up saves? I don't think you are. I think you're um, picking up for the ratios, but you just have to still stay away and treat it the way you were treating it before. 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, we talked about the Tampa Bay situation that, sure, we, there is no closer, but everyone is getting a share. And if you have a really good pitcher and a share, you know, you're getting a third of the closer job. Uh, I like Andrew Kittredge in the bullpen. Um, I, I, first of all, he got a 1-4-3 ERA, .85 whip. Um, he has been phenomenal this year. He has six wins, but now some save opportunities may open up. Um, I can really see him getting a nice third of the share, uh, share of saves. Again, you're not going to get more than that on the Rays, but that's just going to increase his value. And I have him on a couple of teams, uh, even in some shallow leagues. Uh, I would really consider Andrew Kittredge. Um, what about, um, well, <laughs> look at poor Paul Seawold. You know, three days ago, he had no value. And then they traded Graveman. Oh, all of a sudden, he's the closer. Bada bing, bada boom. And two seconds later, T.M. Castillo, his, his value just plummeted. Uh, crazy. Um, Washington. Uh, they traded Brad Hand. Do you see it as Kyle Finnegan to pick up Tanner Rainey? Are you staying away from the situation? Um, I I I don't know. I I, th- I think Wander Suero has the best profile for it because he has that. He has a very dominating fastball. I think he's gonna be the guy to go for. But I probably stay away from anyone there because they're not gonna have that many save opportunities. I think. And listen, Brad Hand was traded to Toronto. Brad Hand has not been good recently. He's been giving up a lot of runs. I wouldn't go ahead and start dropping Jordan Romano just yet. I think if you have Jordan Romano, I think you hold on. Because remember, Brad Hand's a lefty. They may just they may split the saves going down, down the stretch. I don't think there's any reason to get rid of them. How about the Marlins situation? Uh, they traded Garcia. Uh, Dylan Floro, Anthony Bender. I've actually picked up Anthony Bender in like three leagues. Uh, do they go back to Anthony Bass, who we had on the show here, beat the shift? Um, any anybody that you're buying? I think Anthony Bass is the cheapest. He'll be available almost for free, and I think they may go back to him because he was the closer to start the season. They may try to establish him again at the end of this year, so going to next year he can be the closer. Anthony Bender they already used as an opener for a game, so I can't see him going back to closer. I mean, the Marlins, I think it was two years ago, they used Ryan Stanek as an opener for most of the season, and he even got some save opportunities. I don't see the same thing with Bender. Um, I think they use him in high-leverage situations, but I can see them going back to Anthony Bass. All right, Cubs. They traded Ryan Tepera, so he's not going to be the guy. Rowan Wick, I'm assuming now's the time to pick up a lot of Rowan Wick. Well, he's still on the IL. You don't know exactly when he's coming back. So I think if Kimbrell stays, obviously he's the closer. Um, But if he goes, I think it may may be Rex Brothers. He's closed before a little bit when he was with Colorado. It was him and... and, um, What's his name? The other there's another guy in Colorado. There's always a committee in Colorado. So Rex Brothers do, brothers does have the ability to close. So I think he, even though he's a lefty, I think they'd go with him. Yeah, I think if you ha- don't have problems with your lineup and you can spare a spot, Rowan Wick is going to be a cheap option to hold for a week or two more uh, and see what you got. I would spend a dollar on Rowan Wick. Um, all right, what about the uh, situation now? Uh, Pirates. Uh, this may be a moot point by now, but uh, if if you're in a <laughs> If if you somehow have David Bednar available and they trade Richard Rodriguez, he's the guy. We've been talking about him quite a bit. Uh, twin situation. Um, who, who do you have here? Is is Hansel Robles the guy to throw stuff? Tyler Duffy? Uh, who, who's the guy for you? 
I think it's it's gonna be Hansel Robles unless he's traded, and I think Hansel Robles will probably be traded. The most logical guy to be traded was Taylor Rogers, but he just went on the injured list with a sprained finger, so he's not probably not gonna get traded. Although Danny Duffy, who is on the IL, was just traded earlier today to the Dodgers, so you never know what's gonna happen. But I think Hansel Robles is a closer until he's gone from there. You still have Alex Colomay sitting there. He could hypothetically still close. So I wouldn't put all my money on Tyler Duffy, though. All right, Texas. Uh, assuming Ian Kennedy gets traded, you no longer have uh, Jolie Rodriguez. Who's the guy for you? Is it Spores in the bullpen? It's it's Spores, but I think I'd stay away from that situation also because I think it'll be a little bit by committee because there's no real proven closer there. All right. Any other situations to uh, talk about uh, with changing hands from this? Um, I think we should also mention, I guess, Cincinnati. Cincinnati's still in the race. I mean, who do you have there? Do you have Amir Garrett, who has looked good sometimes, bad sometimes? Heath Hembry. They just got Michael Givens. They have Sean Doolittle now. Who do you think they go with? Michael Givens, uh, being that they traded for him um, and they really don't have a guy. I think Givens is the guy to throw a dart on. Okay, I, I, I tend to agree with that. And there's another situation that's going on in Arizona. Yes, they're the last place team. Yes, they're trading away everybody. But the last few games, Joaquin Soria has pitched the eighth inning, and Tyler Clippard has been getting the save opportunities. Do you spend on Tyler Clippard? Goodness gracious. Uh, wasn't Tyler yes. Clippard on the Mets' uh, 2015 uh, postseason run? Yes, he was, and he's and well, yeah, Joaquin Soria is is, is in, I guess she's in the same age range. Oh, so man. I mean, either one of them. I mean, who who do you who do you have there? I I go with Soria, but uh, I mean the Diamondbacks stink. So um, you know, I, I I'm probably staying away from that situation altogether. I'd rather bet on one of the other guys, even even if it's less of a guarantee. I'd rather go with uh, the Rowan Wick or the Anthony Bender rather than play in the Diamondback situation. I agree, and I think both of them will prob- probably get traded before the trade deadline. So, Yeah, it's possible. All right, uh, let's do a pitcher preview. That's where we talk about um, either a good matchup for next week that you want the pitcher, a two-start week, or now that it's almost August, uh, unbelievable it's almost August, uh, could be a future two-start pitcher. That would mean a, a pitcher that is slated to be not two-start this week, but two-start the following week, and on the waiver wire you can probably get him for free, whereas next week if people are struggling to get – Anybody they can with two starts, he would be. They would cost money. So free is better. Uh, if you can roster the guy and save him for a week, it's always better to do it first. Any uh, pitcher preview? Any uh, any pitchers you want to mention? Yeah, I got two of them actually. I got Adrian Hauser. He's only twenty one percent owned in CBS. He's got two start lined up right now: Pittsburgh and San Francisco. I like the Pittsburgh start a lot. Um, he's only pitched a total of thirteen innings in his in his last three outings, but he's got a two seven ERA. Only nine strikeouts and eight walks. So I don't like those ratios too much, but he is playing for a first-place team, so there's a possibility that if they don't add to that rotation by the, t- by the time this airs, um, I think he will get the shot, and I think he's a guy worth owning to try to get a win. Another guy to mention is Michael Waka. Yes, the former Met. Um, he's with uh, Tampa right now. He is playing Seattle and at Baltimore. That was a pretty, those are pretty good matchups. His ERA in the last couple starts was 4.5, which is not that great. But he's got 16 strikeouts and 14 innings playing on a team that's doing very well, the Tampa Bay Rays. He's only 13% owned in CBS, so he's another guy to watch for. Yeah, and being that they just traded Rich Hill to the Mets and they just traded Castillo out, 
Um, I, I would assume that they would want starters to go that extra inning if possible, uh, and that always helps, uh, you know, for fantasy. And Seattle, Baltimore, that's that's you know a fantastic. It doesn't get much better than that. So if you if you're ever going to roster Michael Waka this year, it would be this coming week. Uh, those two guys were on my list. I'll just throw two guys out. Uh, the, the list is really bad this week. I, I really don't see picking up pitchers here. I, I think I'd go for speculative closers this week instead. But uh, Dane Dunning, I, I, I like his stuff. He's playing the Angels and Oakland this year. And Jordan Lyles playing the Angels and Oakland as well. Um, yeah, two, two guys you might pick. And uh, here's another Texas guy, future two-star pitcher, Colby Allard. He's been very good at times, not so good at other times. But uh, two-star at Seattle and versus Oakland. Pick him up now. He'll be free. Uh, and just ride him while you can. All right. Yeah. This is this is the time to get the two-star pitchers because if you do this too late, you're not going to get the stats you need because September, a lot of times they start bringing up more people and they'll get less playing time. So you got to get them now when they're hot. Yeah. You know, and in terms of strategy, you know, it, we, we don't really advocate going with the two-star pitchers so early because you can get gombered by somebody. Um but, uh, you know, at, at, when you get down to, to the nitty-gritty with the last uh, eight weeks of the season, you see we are in categories, and you see which means more. Is it uh, wins? Is it strikeouts? Are they bunched up? Do they have a high gradient? Or do you see uh, the ERA, is that bunched up? Because if you're not at a point where you can gain a lot in ERA, or if you actually have a great lead— you're you're much better off starting that two star pitcher, even if he was a crappy player, to get that maybe win or pick up a couple of strikeouts. Um, so you really need for any of these things, like we're telling you blanket advice, but it's very context dependent. You have to look at your league situation and always go for the the categories that are required in a bunched up situation, the high gradient, the low gradient ones, where either you have a, a lead or you uh, you know you're trailing by too much. Those you don't need those statistics as much and trade from one to the other. Um, do, do you suggest to do that, Ruvain, on on the batting side as well? Like if you have a, a big stolen base lead, you're up by I don't know twelve stolen bases on the next guy, um, and and you know you're bunched up in power. Is it worth sitting? I don't know, Ramiel Tapia for um, you know uh, just some uh, Randall Grechuk, uh, you know somebody who's going to hit power and not much else. Uh, you know. Well, well, I wouldn't use Ramiel Tapia as an example because he scores a lot of runs also. Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily use him. But if you just, let's say you're going to use um, a player like Dylan Moore, who will either get on base a couple times, steal a couple bases, hit a home run now and then, but you mainly have him and you got him at the at the auction or draft for stolen bases. If you want to play him, now, I think now's the time to do it because this is also the time when people are looking in the waiver wire trying to find those stolen base guys. If you have the abundance of stolen bases, I wouldn't necessarily sit them. I'd even try to trade them for a need that you have on your team because the trading deadline for a lot of leagues is going to be either this week or next week. And if you have that stolen base guy, look, in the, look at the standings for stolen bases. Who needs the stolen bases? What do they have that you could use? Offer that trade. What have you got to lose if you have that 12 stolen base lead? Yeah, fair point. And yeah, my, my example was not the greatest. I just thought about it very quickly. But yeah, the point is that, um, you know, hitting side, it works as well. And obviously, if you can go in the trade route, that always is as well. Uh, injury update, Ruvain. Uh, as we head into the trading deadline, what do you have for us? 
Okay, first of all, we'll start with Jared Walsh. He was actually placed on the IL with a right intercostal strain. We don't know how bad it is just yet. The earliest he can be activated will be August 6th. Phil Gosselin, Matt Thais was were called up. Those are guys who can fill in at first base um, for the Angels. Pete Fairbanks, another guy who was in that bullpen for, for Tampa, just was placed on the IL, so that opens up spots for other people to get saves. This is the second time he's on the IL with shoulder inflammation. That's not a good thing, so we'll see how that works out. Some updates. Um, Francisco Lindor, the GM for the Mets, actually gave an update saying that he's going to be out for about another four to five weeks, so make sure you have a good uh, replacement for him. Um, you have Mike Trout. Um, the rumor is, or they were saying, that there's a possibility that when he comes back, which will be hopefully in the next week or two if everything plays out properly, and when he comes back, he may actually play a corner outfield spot or and or DH. That's a very good possibility, and have Shohei Otani play the outfield a little bit more. So that's something just to watch for. Luis Severino is going out on a rehab assignment starting next week, so he's a guy to watch for. Chris Sale, he has two more rehab starts, and then he, as long as everything goes well, he will be activated. Jack Flaherty, he's on a rehab assignment also. He will be back as soon as they get him up to about 70 to 75 pitches. His last rehab start when he went about 30 pitches. And I have to mention this guy, your favorite, Chris Archer. He's currently rehabbing. I think he had thoracic outlet surgery. Um, he's had four rehab starts. If he's available, he's only 17% owned oh, no. in CBS right oh, no. now. In those four starts, no. 279 ERA, 0.93 whip, a 10.2K per nine, 0.9 homers per nine. It's only over nine and two-third innings. I understand that. But that's very un-Chris Archer-like. And if he's available... He's on the Rays. They're going to oh, probably boy. need him at some point. He will come up, and he may play a role later on in the season for the Rays. Goodness gracious, uh, you can't get me to pick up Chris Archer. Sorry. I'm, I'm Chris Archered out. Well, if you have so many injuries on your team, you may need to. I'm going to add one waiver pickup, and this is breaking news right now, uh, but uh, I would pick up Alcides Escobar. He might be the starting shortstop for the uh, Washington Nationals. Uh, just got word of a trade: Max Scherzer and Trey Turner going to the Dodgers. So pick up. I really, Escobar. it really feels like 2015 now. See, does Escobar on a on a team starting on a team oh again? It's ridiculous. Oh boy, oh boy. Uh, but yeah, he's. I mean, he's gonna score some runs, steal a couple occasional base. Um, he'll get playing time. I mean, they gotta play somebody out there short. Um, That's true. Well, go. they do have a. Pro- they also called up the prospect Luis Garcia. If yeah, he's available, yeah. he's one of their top prospects. He's going to come up, and he's a guy that you can pick up also. All right. Yeah. Good suggestion there. All right. Well, uh, you know, once again, it's been a great episode. Uh, we got Bill James. We had uh, deadline closers, waiver wire, uh, so much action-packed stuff in this episode. Um, but uh, it is now time to go. So before that. Uh, Ruben, why don't you just tell us uh, where we can find your work and read your stuff and uh, all things Ruben Guy. You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates on a daily basis, who next guy up, and how long they should be at based on their injury and based on my medical experience. I also have a weekly article on Rollerballer discussing these injuries that I discussed today, as well as every other injury, almost every other important fantasy-relevant injury, and the next guy up. All right, and I'm um, Ariel Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. Read my stuff over at Fangraph, Sportsline, and Rotoballer. And, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs each week. All right, we've got two months left in the season. 
Uh, time to kick it into high gear in your fantasy baseball leagues. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.